I will kick us off and just say thanks for everyone for joining our second edition of The Bag Drop Live. I'm your typical host of The Bag Drop, Matt Considine. You may also know me from our time together at New Club Golf Society. Uh, tonight, we have a very uh, special edition of The Bag Drop Live with Ron Reed. Ron Reed, who is the 20-plus year star official starter of the U.S. Open. Uh, he was the focus of our May book club with his book, Starting the U.S. Open. I know I enjoyed the read, and uh, it's really a pleasure to be here tonight with Ron Reed. Um, the gentleman who's going to be moderating us and taking care of the interview is none other than Jim Sitar. So Jim um, will be our, our host for the evening and, and walk us through some of Ron's stories, and, and I'm sure he'll have a bevy of questions. So without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to you, Mr. Sitar, and our conversation with Ron Reed. Great. Thanks, Matt. And uh, thanks, everyone, for joining. Um, it's our Backdrop Live uh, recording uh, for June 2nd. Uh, it's my pleasure to have Ron Reed um, on the podcast tonight. And uh, if you guys will indulge me, I'd like to give this a shot. Uh, our guest has been introducing uh, thousands and thousands of people on one of golf's greatest stages. So I'm just going to try to give a short introduction in Ron Reed style. And now on the Backdrop Live podcast, originally from the LaGrange, Illinois area, a proud alum of the Lions Township golf team, now hailing from Monterey Peninsula, the 23-time official starter of the U.S. Open, the man who wore the same socks on the first tee every Father's Day, Ron Reed. Thank you so much. Uh, one, one quick correction. <laughs> I couldn't make the golf team. I, I played baseball. I was a first baseman on the uh, LT baseball team. So uh, okay. I was really a poor golfer and I'm, I'm probably worse now. Uh, I, I blame my researcher on that one. Thanks for the correction <laughs> there. As, as you say in your book many times, you made a number of errors uh, as, a, uh, as an announcer and you would just quickly correct yourself and, uh, and let it go. The word correction came early in my uh, starting career. That's great. Well, I'm going to start off here by asking a bunch of questions, just kind of getting the conversation going. And then uh, for about the second half of uh, the recording tonight, uh, we're going to open up questions to uh, people in attendance. Um, I first you know, wanted to ask you about your Chicago roots. Um, as you know, New Club is um, uh, one of its hubs is Chicago. We have a lot of members uh, that play in and around the suburbs. So uh, you grew up outside of LaGrange on the south side of Chicago. Um, what do you remember about the golf courses you played out there in your teenage years? Oh, we had some good golf courses. We had Timber Trails, Acacia Golf Club, uh, the Part 3, Maple Crest. And uh, as a boy, I played I played them all. And guess what? You know, there's only one left. And that's uh, it's the old Maple, uh, Maple Crest Golf Course on Route 66 next to Lionsville Church that I, I went to for a lot of years. So uh, I didn't play private club golf. I uh, never played LaGrange Country Club until a high school reunion about 15 years ago. 
but uh, I, I, I lived actually near the Edgewood Valley Golf and Country Club, uh, south of LaGrange, and uh, I never played that one either. So I was a public, uh, public golf kid. That's great. And, and most of us play almost all of our golf on, on public courses, and, and we're, we're fortunate enough to, to live in one of the great American cities for public golf. Um, Take away ask, public, uh, you're, you're Chicago, uh, you know, I'm hard pressed. I don't know New York. Well, New York has great golf courses, but I'm not sure any big city has more great golf courses than Chicago. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, wanted to shift gears here to ask a little bit about your book. You referenced some of the, the gaffes that you made, some of the mistakes that you, you committed, you know, as a, as a starter, again, introducing probably about 10,000 different golfers at the U.S. Open. So understandably, you had a few um, little mistakes here and there. Um, which, which of those mistakes stand out most to you in your memory? Well, I learned mistakes early. The very first TV starting time I had was the fifth group, fifth from the end at Shinnecock, 1986. And it was... Uh, Tommy Nakajima from Narita, Japan, and Lanny Watkins from Dallas, then Dallas, Texas. And I introduced uh, Tommy to play away. And all of a sudden, uh, Lanny, he didn't have a speaking part. He says, wait a minute, I have the honor. <laughs> and I'm sure Frank Hannigan and, and uh, the fellows at the USGA that gave me the job of starting wondered what was going on. Well, the standard bearer had the names incorrectly reversed i was correct this the uh, standard bearer was wrong and i immediately said correction mr watkins play away so i learned early uh mike i made many mistakes another one of my gaffes was in 1983 at uh at Raw, 1993 and uh jim thorpe a friend of mine got over the ball. He got ready to hit it. And all of a sudden I blurted, Jim, is this a provisional ball? And I'd forgotten to introduce him. <laughs> and he looked up and he says, man, I ain't, I ain't even hit it yet. The USG is trying to penalize me. <laughs> so uh, I had to say correction and I said it properly. And then I ran up and gave him a big bear hug as he smashed it down the middle of the middle of the fairway but probably the gaff that I remember the most was in 1992 and uh, Jim I, I, I would go to great lengths I handled player registration and I would ask the players how do you say your name and where do you live and uh, in this case it was Ian Woosnam and for three days he was introduced from Oswa Street England now we all knew he was from Wales Day four, I introduced him from Oswestry, and all of a sudden he turns around live worldwide to 100 million people, and he says, I'm from Wales. Well, what do I do now? And immediately, I said, correction, Wales. And I went on with all the introductions, and I got to uh, the special observer. And ladies and gentlemen, this is Joe Carr, captain of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews, and here's what came out of my mouth. From Dublin. England. Well, immediately there was a murmur and Joe was chuckling and uh, I realized my mistake and I corrected it. Well, next to speak uh, in TV was uh, the BBC's Peter Alice. And Peter Alice, 
appropriately said, wars have started over less. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> so, and, and the, the story continued because I went to David Fay and I said, David, I never asked for this job. You can have it back. And I, two days I was in a funk and I was in the East Bay having dinner alone and I was still upset. And my waiter came up and I ordered a double Merlot and um, I noticed he was from, you know, he had a British accent. I said, where are you from? He says, London. I said, well, can you tell me where Oswestry is? And he looked right at me and he said, I don't know, but I was watching the U.S. Open. And you're the guy. Well, <laughs> next I knew he was in the, in the bar, talking to the bartender. And it, it was at that, that moment I began to laugh at myself and realized that, uh, you know, mistakes get made and it's just life. So, uh, but that was my worst mistake. Well, the important thing is that you kind of roll with it and learn from your mistakes, but you don't, you don't harp on them. You don't dwell on your own mistakes. Um, has that helped you um, with your approach to other parts in life? Well, you know, you learn humility in many ways. Uh, I suppose golf has is, is been the most humbling thing I've ever had to do. So, uh, of course, it's, uh, you learn in many, many ways. And it certainly helped me a lot making those mistakes. That's great. Um, for those who can't see where you are, you're, you're on video now on our Zoom. And um, what might explain some of the, the, the wind we're hearing is that you're standing near the 18th green at Pebble Beach. Uh, tell us why you're there. Well, I, uh, I've been coming here since uh, I was marshal in 1968. The U.S. Army brought me out here to the language school in Monterey, and I volunteered as a marshal. And, and uh, so I've been coming here since 1968, and I spent 16 years with a magical dog walking uh, these fairways and uh, she was better known than I was and that was a good thing but when Dottie, Dottie Pepper uh, got the job at CBS we had, I had known Dottie for years and she and I and dog Katrina would, would walk the golf course before play and who knows I may have helped her a little bit learn about the golf course and the history and so on so, uh, I've been lucky uh, both in playing Pebble Beach and Fairmount early in my career and uh and of course walking every inch of it for many many years well you're very lucky um some of us have been fortunate to, to see pebble beach and and some of the other um courses where the u.s open is is typically played i'm wondering what are your aside from pebble beach uh which i know has a special place in your heart being in your backyard what other u.s open venues were your favorites? Oh, Shinnecock for sure. Uh, I, I have, I've only played it a couple of times, but it's, uh, you know, it's Linksy. I love Lynx golf. Of course, I don't hit it very far, so I like that ground, ground game. Um, I think it's a great golf course. And if uh, PJ Boatwright once said to me, if, if he had his way, he would play the U.S. Open at Shinnecock, Pebble Beach, Shinnecock, Pebble Beach, Shinnecock, Pebble Beach, Oakmont, Oakland Hills, Shinnecock, Pebble Beach, Medina. He'd throw in others once in a while, but uh, I think a part of it had to do with weather because the weather was fairly predictable, uh, both in the east and west coast. 
but my two favorites, I think, are Shinnecock, Oakmont, and Pebble Peak. Well, you did name your book with the subtitle From Shinnecock to Pebble Beach. So maybe you had PJ Boatwright in mind there, thinking about his two favorite venues as well. And of course, you know, going from East Coast to West Coast, you're, you're able to span, um, you know, the entire country uh, with the venues um, to be more, you know, broad and, and, and geographically um, diverse. But I'm, I'm glad personally that the U.S. Open moves to a lot of different places, um, including public courses, including courses that ne weren't necessarily built about 100 years ago. Um, you had a particular hand in helping the USGA identify uh, Chambers Bay as an important venue for several USGA events, not just the US Open, but including the US Open. Tell us what it was like uh, discovering Chambers Bay and trying to convince the USGA to have events there. Well, I, I, uh, it, all, it started for me, and I tell this book, I, I kind of felt like Lewis and Clark of golf in a way. I spent about 23 years looking at uh, a number of golf courses in the Northwest because the Northwest had never had a U.S. Open, and I, I thought that was a shame. So it took me to places like Bandon and Waverly Country Club and uh, out to Bend, Oregon, Crosswater, and, and a number of courses. And, but I, uh, one day, uh, I was at a Christmas party with a friend, uh, and Robert Trent Jones said, you got to see this, this property in, in, the, in Tacoma, south of uh, Seattle. So I rushed up there and um, Bob Jones, Trent Jones Jr. and John Ladenberg, who was another dreamer. He was the executive who, who uh, envisioned the A-golf course there. And three of us stood there and I looked at about 900 acres of pure sand. And I said, gentlemen, we build it day one to hold the U.S. Open. And uh, we... Three of us, uh, you know, were in agreement. So I immediately called uh, uh, David uh, Fay, and the next thing I knew, the USGA entourage came out. They looked at the property, and one thing led to another. And uh, two years later, they announced the U.S. Amateur, and it was one of the highlight days of my my life. And they also announced the U.S. Open. So mission accomplished. I I couldn't have been happier. That's great. I I personally hope that Chambers Bay gets another shot at the open, um, especially since they've, you know, been able to address some of those, you know, early concerns about turf and everything. And uh, I know a lot of us here um, love Bandon Dunes. Some of us have been fortunate to, to be there. And um, we're wondering, you know, in your book toward the end, you mentioned that you, you raved about it so many times to David Fay at the USGA that he had to tell you to stop talking about it. Um, you also mentioned in the book that you believe Bandon Dunes will one day be able to host the U.S. Open. Um, what what makes you so confident that Bandon can can host the Open? Well, you know, like um, Mike Kaiser, who you know, Mike, who's more important to the game of golf today than Mike Kaiser? Look at look at what he's accomplished, and and he said, "Build it, and they'll come." And guess what? That golf course is uh, full much of the year by the way the reed family was the first to spend christmas there and now i suspect we couldn't get a room because it's uh, it's so busy but you know they'll solve the hotel problems and uh the golf course all of them 
you know, every time I go, I have this debate about which is the best. And every time I, I come up with a different vote, uh, I just love the place. And obviously, so do, so do golfers from all over the world today. So I think someday uh, it'll happen, not in my lifetime, but I hope I'm looking down and uh, can pridefully say, you know, I predicted this. <laughs> well, yeah, we all hope so. And um, you mentioned Bandon in, in December. Our golf society has a trip uh, out to Bandon Dunes this, this December. It's not quite over Christmas, but uh, it'll, be, it'll be close enough. What can you well, you're tell smart us? Lads. What can, what can you tell us about the weather in, uh, in Oregon in December in terms of golf? I would say uh, uh, bring your sweaters, bring your jumpers, as they say in the UK. But, um, and it'll rain. I've played, it, I've played it in May when it blew our, everybody's umbrella inside out and rained. Um, and yet I've played in December when it's perfect. So it's a lot like Pebble Beach. Um, you never know. You know, speaking of weather, um, you've seen some um, some interesting things over the years at the um, at the first tee. In particular, uh, Payne Stewart at Pinehurst during his iconic U.S. Open win in 1999. I think a lot of us, when we think of that, we have an image of Payne Stewart wearing um, a unique styled rain jacket. Can you tell us the story from your perspective? It was drizzling a little bit lightly, and he came to the tee, and he he came a little early, thankfully, and he he said, um, "You have any scissors?" Well, I had a lot of things in the starters box, but I didn't have scissors, so I I you know I knew him fairly well and could joke with them, and I kind of circled them, and I said, "Well, gee, you don't need a haircut." He says, "No, I want to cut the sleeves off this thing." Well, he was wearing a who knows thousand dollar jacket, whatever it was. Um, we chased down to the tennis club nearby and found some scissors and uh, in the meantime Mickelson Phil Mickelson was his uh, fellow competitor and he came up and he wondered what was going on too but we cut the sleeves off the off the jacket and today they're posted if you go to Pinehurst they're um, they're on the wall uh, <laughs> and uh, by the way you know the last thing I ever said to him he he when he won he uh, we embraced and um he says, champagne for the press room. And I looked at him, I said, man, there are 3,000 people there. I, you know, what am I, where am I going to invent 3,000 uh, tastings of champagne? Well, he wanted it. The champ wanted it done. Well, uh, I couldn't produce. And uh, what, four months later, October, excuse me, yeah, October 25th, uh, a friend uh, sadly died in South Dakota. So that was a sad, sad day for me. Well, it's a great memory, and and you know he lives on in those iconic images of 1999, and and of course that statue that overlooks the 18th green now at Pinehurst Number Two, that a lot of us have been able to visit. Hey, as you um, look, can I share a story quickly? Oh, of course, please go. As you look at that seawall there, you know, funny night. Um, he was the defending champ, and he was going to do the media day for us in uh, 19. Well, we won in 91, so it was 92. And and the night before, he went to dinner here at the tap room in that building. And he was sitting there, and a the guy looked at me and said, you know, you look like, like Payne Stewart. And he said, I am Payne Stewart. 
Well, a bet followed that up, and uh, they, they bet a bottle of Cristal, a very expensive champagne. And <laughs> Payne pulled out every document he had to prove who he was, and guess what? He and his friend sat on that wall right there and drank the champagne out of the trophy. Well, the next morning at 10 o'clock, Payne didn't show up. He was, he, he was feeling the effects of the evening before, but uh, uh, the, the guy challenged him. He, that uh, not many guys look that good either as Payne Stewart. It happened right there. You know, we can we can completely imagine that and and visualize that as you're as you're pointing um, just to the side of the 18th green at at Pebble. Um, no one no one but Payne Stewart can um, can pull that off. Um, you know, I'm wondering you you know you have so many intimate stories about the players over the last couple of decades that are just complete legends to, to us. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, who were, who are you, some of your favorites on tour? Who are, who are the ones that you were most looking forward to seeing on the first tee? And well, you know, there, there were so many of them. I mean, they, a lot of them were understated guys like uh, David Tom. I, I thought, I thought he'd win a U.S. Open. He's such a nice individual and Larry Nelson, uh, you know, I, Larry Nelson, there's just no nicer human being. Arnold and Jack, I mean, what can I say? Arnold, you know, he was such a great guy because he let everybody in. He let me in. And I have some some wonderful memories in the book, including his last U.S. Open. And and Jack, Jack's a little different personality, but I learned he had a wonderful sense of humor. And uh, I once told him he hit the worst tee shot I'd ever seen at the U.S. Open. And he kind of looked at me. You know, how can you say that to me? Well, I tell the story and what happened following that. It's in the book, but uh, they were they were wonderful guys. And so many of them are. Very, very few were ever a problem. Well, it's good to hear that the, you know, the public image that we see, um, you know, with Jack and Arnold and, and a lot of other, you know, players of, of recent generations, um, that those public images are 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 the truth, you know. That we that um, what we are seeing is you know is the reality of of their characters, um, and so much of that, you know, comes alive in your book. I I, I wasn't I wasn't really prepared for it, but it it seems like on every page you have an anecdote about you know a household name um, doing something unique, whether it's 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 funny or, or touching. Um, and there's stories that we haven't heard before. You know, there, there, there are stories that, that you alone really know about. And so I, I want to thank you for writing this book and, and sharing all these, um, these stories with us, because it, it, it's been a real pleasure to, to, to read them. Well, you know, coming from your background as a Teaching uh, creative writing, as I understand it, uh, you know that means a lot to me. Um, I just, I just pulled it out there, and um, uh, I've been lucky. The comments have been, you know, really very, very kind. I do want to ask a Pebble Beach question, um, since since you are there. Um, but this happens maybe about six hundred yards away from where you are. I'm sure you've collected a lot of important <laughs> mementos. Um, through your work with the USGA and at the US Open. And we've shared some of this with our, with our, um, with our members, but 
We're wondering, um, could you tell us the story about the Tom Watson chip in and, and, and the flag from that pin? When I was to digress for just a second, I was actually standing with Jack Nicholas was nearby. He was going to be interviewed by uh, Jack Whitaker and right about where I am right now. And uh, Jack Whitaker said, how's it feel to win your 50 US Open? And all of a sudden there was a roar out there on the uh, 17th green. And, and uh, the, their interview changed entirely because we knew what happened by the roar. And on that Monday, I got the flag from the 17th hole, the chip in, and I put it in a box and forgot about it. And uh, at uh, Olympia Fields in oh. I get confused. Oh, one, I believe. Uh, when Jim Furyk won, uh, I took the flag to uh, Olympia Fields and I was going to get Tom to sign it and put it on my wall. And then, you know, this was Tom's last U.S. Open and he was leading at one point. And he his caddy, of course, Bruce Edwards, world knew that he had ALS and his days were numbered. So on Sunday morning, I finally took the flag out of my my suitcase, took it to the club. I couldn't find Tom. I wanted to say, Tom, you know, I want to give this to Bruce. I said, okay. Couldn't find him. So I took it to the first tee and here comes Bruce. And uh, he, uh, Bruce was, was, was really tired down and he came up and I said, here, I want you to have this, this flag. And he looked at me and said, what is it? I said, this is a flag from 1982. Well, he got pretty emotional and, and I did too. And along came Watson and he looked at the two of us, two crying adults on the first tee of the U.S. Open. And I finally, I looked at him and I said, Tom, I just gave Bruce the, the flag. Did I do the right thing? And he looked at me and said, you did the right thing. So uh, Fike went back to his auction the next day. Bruce got it. And uh, when he passed on, uh, Tom got the flag, so I believe today it sits at the Kansas City Country Club. But uh, I, I never, I, I had, I don't have many pictures of players other than you know I just happened to be standing there. Um, I I did have the scorecard from Medina. I don't know whether you want me to share that story now or what, but yeah, go ahead. Well, <laughs> we had confusion because uh, we'd never had an extra hole playoff in a sudden death U.S. Open. He was playing with Mike Donald. Mike bogeyed the 18th hole. And uh, Grant Spaeth, the president, called me and he said, is there a flagstick on number one? We're, we, we're going extra holes. Well, I ran as fast as I could to the corner and uh, of the, of the dog leg. By gosh, there was no flagstick yet. And here came 20,000 people and two players. We had no scorecards for them. and It was a mess. So I scribbled the names. Fortunately, the superintendent got a flagstick. And uh, Hale hit about a 15-foot putt, and he made it for a birdie to win the U.S. Open. And Mike Donald walked over, and he handed me the scorecard with his one signature on it. And I took that square card and never on that meeting get a second signature you know it's stroke play with world do who won right so uh, i put it in a sport coat sport coat went to the cleaners came back pinned and i realized there was only one signature well we all knew who won but 
so six months later at a dinner, uh, I had Hale come to the to the microphone. I said, Hale, you think you won the U.S. Open, but I have a scorecard here that only has one signature. And he grabbed that thing as fast as he could and wrote his name. And I have that scorecard. It's not at the USGA, but uh, I really uh, I don't have a rogues gallery of, of many many uh, photographs with players and so on. I just have a lot of memories. Well, that's great. I, you know, I thought maybe you collected, you know, pin sheets or, or, you know, some other kind of golf junk or anything like that. But that's, that's, uh, that's a memento that, that beats you know, all others. I wrote the, I wrote the book from memory. Basically, there was only one thing that I found I had written on a pairing sheet. And it was a comment that Arnold made. And it was a personal comment about Jack, his rival. <laughs> and i i won't share it now but i will tell you that it had to do with uh, the pace at which jack played which was not known to be fast <laughs> and it didn't miss arnold's attention <laughs> uh, that was great. the only quote or you know real note that i wrote for the entire book it was basically from memory you know, this this will be my last question, and and, yep. and then we'll and then we'll open it up to uh, to others in attendance here. Um, but you mentioned that um, you know that anecdote about Jack's slow play on on your uh, on your sheet. I'm wondering if you could tell us if you saw, you know, from your standpoint, it's a very very serious place. You know, the first tee at the U.S. Open. Everyone has dreams of winning the U.S. Open. Um, everyone wants to start off well. So it's a, I'm sure you're in a, you've seen players very intense, very focused. Um, but you mentioned in the book that you've, you've seen a prank or two being pulled on the first tee. Um, <laughs> could, you, could you tell us a little bit about those pranks? Well, the biggest pranksters were uh, Fuzzy Zeller and Hubert Green. And the, the first year uh, at Shinnecock, they, uh, this was round two. And Jerry Pate had dropped out the third player. And so the two clowns showed up early on the first tee. And I wasn't paying attention. And I was just trying to get organized. And all of a sudden, I heard laughter in the crowd. And as you just pointed out, it's, you know, the U.S. Open is a pretty serious place. And you don't often hear laughter like you might at the old Crosby or, you know, a pro-am someplace. And I looked up and each of them had taken the championship marker and marched forward about 80 yards to what was then known as the ladies tees and the crowd got into it and they thought this was funny well i didn't and uh, the good news is that we got you know the location of the of the markers and i just simply uh, went down there got them came back put them in the ground on the white dot and i didn't tell my boss Frank, uh, mr boatwright until that night and he, you know when i told him he said they did what and uh, it was uh, you know situation where two us open champions i don't think they wanted to disqualify them or i don't think they would have but it was a serious situation i treated it i tried to treat it as lightly as they did but um, as far as the seriousness um, i treated it as seriously as i thought the players were at the time in other words, there were some of them you could talk to. Uh, I used to say to uh, David Duvall, give me a good book. Or Lucas Glover. 
two guys that read voraciously. And, um, you know, there were guys you could talk to and have fun. But for the most part, I, I kept it uh, pretty straight. Well, that's great. Yeah, thank you for sharing all those memories and stories. And, and I'm sure that um, those who are in attendance here have, have some questions uh, for you now. Um, just wanted to open it up, open the floor, uh, see uh, what questions are out there. Go ahead, guys. I go first. I don't know if this is a contractual issue or not, but uh, can you make a, any more reference to the $39 watch that, uh, yeah. that you wore? <laughs> Is there well, a I brand find, or a? Yeah. Oh, I no. I, I I reached out to the company, thinking that you know they might want a profit, <laughs> and I never heard back. But the the, the the funny part about the watch was, it, it, in fact, I think it's still thirty nine bucks, but uh, and it kept perfect time, digital time, year to year. It was right on the second. I take it out of a box, you know, every year. By golly. I had a number, the U.S. Naval Observatory Master Clock from Washington, D.C. I would call it before every championship, and that clock kept perfect time for the second. Well, then along comes commercialism. They put in a Rolex clock behind me, and um, they also gave me an atomic clock. So I had three clocks going. Well, the Rolex clock, the first year was a minute off, so that wasn't going to work, and it got hot at Oakmont, and the sun would hit the, the atomic clock and it would go black. So all I had was my $39 watch. <laughs> Keeping perfect time. So it was the official clock of the U.S. Open. And every day I'd call the U.S. Naval Observatory and by golly, uh, the time was just perfect every day. And then all that time, you know, I figured out one time I was on the first tee for about five weeks of my life. There wasn't one starting time that ever did not go off on time. So I guess, uh, you know, I'm, another thing I feel good about. Thank you for asking that. Yeah. I'll go ahead. Hey, Ron, this is Philip. I'm out in uh, Lake Forest, uh, a little bit north of Chicago. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously the U.S. Open goes to courses all around the country, but uh, one course that we're going to see here pretty soon that we haven't ever, uh, at least in a long time, is uh, L.A. Country Club. Yep. And I wonder if you've uh, played there or had any thoughts about the course. You know, I haven't played the new or the redesigned uh, L.A. Country Club. And I understand they've redesigned some of the greens again. Great golf course. No, no question about it. By the way, say hello to uh, Josh Lesnick up there in Lake Forest running uh, Kemper Sports. But, um, you know, it, it just has all the ingredients. Uh, it might surprise some people. It did hold the U.S. junior. Oh, I forget the exact year, late 40s, I think. But, um, and of course, it had the Walker Cup two years ago. So, or I believe two years ago. So, great golf course. Uh, and it, it will be so wonderful for a venue that's, just not been on anybody's radar to finally get to enjoy it and and that's that's wonderful it's too bad there aren't more u.s opens because i mean look at chicago you've got all these great golf courses and olympia fields has been redesigned the nine is a great golf course and chicago's you know there's no better golf area 
in terms of enthusiasm, but the LA Country Club will be very, very special. Hey, Ron, it's uh, Matt Considine. When you were describing Jack and Arnie, you mentioned that they weren't too much trouble. I was wondering if you could tell us about some of the guys that were too much trouble. Oh, my. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start out with the good news first. Uh, a gentleman who's had some really tough luck in his life. He had an accident. He lost a limb or two. And, uh, you know, he, he had a tough go. He has had a tough go. Um, a, a, kind of a funny story, and I'll have to clean it up, was um, uh, it happened at uh, Oakland Hills in 1996. He was playing on Saturday. Well, first of all, he, he drives from Boston with his one friend, his dog, and he leaves the dog in the car, and it's 98 degrees and humid in Detroit, and we had to break into the car to get the dog out. So, he, you know, he didn't make friends there. Um, but he's playing with Watson on Saturday and, and just two players and ladies and gentlemen from Boston, Massachusetts, the hardest word I ever had to say, Ken Green. And I think one person applauded. And as he was headed back to the, to his bag, uh, I introduced Tom Watson, United States Open champion, 1982, Kansas city. And the crowd went nuts. And Ken Green said, and I'll clean it up, why the blip does he get all the applause? <laughs> and I was the only one to hear his, uh, his comment, but uh, <laughs> I, seriously, I think one person applauded when Kenny, uh, he, once, he once came to the tee late and his cousin was on his bag and he his cousin said, he's mad at you because you're almost late. And he took about 8,000 tees out of his silver bowl and poured them all into his golf bag. <laughs> you know, he was, he, he was a different person. But uh, believe me, I, I, I have a, a great respect for him today. He still plays golf. And, you know, life didn't deal him um, a perfect deck of cards. I'll give you one more. Scott Hoke uh, at times. You know, he was a, a tough guy, but, you know, look at it this way too. And in the, in the competition, uh, you know, they changed a little bit, and, but uh, at times he was uh, a little hard to handle. I can get that. I, um, you know, I, I once dated a, a flight attendant and um, I asked her all the time, you know, about her experiences with, you know, people on planes and she had a great perspective on it. She said, you know, I see people in their worst moments, you know, like in their most stressed out, frustrated, angry um, moments of their day or their, or their week. And I'm sure, Ron, that you saw people, <laughs> you saw some of the greatest of the game, um, a little frustrated, a little, you know, grinding really hard to try to win a US Open. Um, you know, yep. especially when it came to, uh, to rules and, um, to, to decisions made about rules. Um, not only did you start the U S open for, for so many years, but you also worked on the, uh, rules committees or, or that you helped serve and be around rules committee members. Do you have any stories, uh, about, uh, 
you know, any kinds of uh, rules and fractions or, or rulings? Oof, where do I begin? I'm, um, right here, I saw Gary Player. Uh, <clears throat> he hit a ball in the water hazard, and um, I, I pointed out to the, to the official on the hole, I said, geez, I think he's going uh, quite a ways ahead of where that ball went into the water. And, you know, maybe I didn't have a perfect sighting, but uh, Lanny Watkins was playing with him, and they took Lanny aside and said, uh, did he drop it properly? And Lanny says, I think he did. You know, we couldn't argue about it. So, uh, uh, you know, was it an infraction? Yeah. Along the way, I developed, uh, uh, with the help of Forrest Fessler, uh, and there's a story in the book about Forrest wearing Bermuda shorts. And in the end, uh, when he asked me, you know, can I wear these Bermudas for the final round? My answer back to him was, let your conscience be your guy. You made a deal. You made a deal not to wear them. Let your conscience be your guy. And I would get into a rule situation. And um, when it was me and the rules of golf versus one other person, a couple of times I said, Sir, let your lady, let your conscience be your guy. And uh, that's the great thing about golf, the rules of golf. You know, it's personal integrity means so much. Ron, I, I had another one kind of related to you know, very few people have been on the inside or as close as you have been to our governing body in golf. Um, there's been so much talk the last few years of the kind of progression of the game and the softening of the rule book, uh, you know, a few years back and, and now the, the distance debate and to see how things are going to, you know, evolve and change there. What, what's your take on the USGA's evolution this, this last decade or so? Where do I begin? Uh, distance, uh, you know, since the 80s, the, the distance that a golf ball could go when the USGA tested it was 280 yards plus a tolerance of 2%, which brings it up six yards. Well, today, you know, if you hit it 286, you're shorty. So, uh, one of the kind of very wise man, Bobby Russell, and during the debates that we would have. He said an arms race in golf makes no sense at all. He borrowed from, you know, the nuclear debate. An arms race in golf makes no sense at all. And guess what? From the 80s till now, there's been an arms race. And um, I would argue that the, uh, the, the, the horses were let out of the barn. And uh, I, I personally don't think it's benefited the game. But um, that's just my feeling. I hope they, at some point, rein it in. Has it made golf a better game? We can argue about that. I don't think it has myself. So uh, that's one issue. You know, I, there are a lot of things. I mean, the USGA, who, who can tell me who the shareholders of the USGA are? You tell me. Is it the members? Who are the members? I'll give you the answer. They're member golf clubs. They are the shareholders. And it's the Harding Park Men's Club. And the nine hole ladies group at uh, Rancho Park in LA. And it's the Los Angeles Country Club. It's, they are the shareholders of the USGA. Uh, today, I'm not sure that they would feel that they've been a, a significant part of the, of the governance of, of the game. Uh, it's just my, my opinion. Uh, Walker Cup. Cup is uh, 20 
kids, 10s from Great Britain and Ireland, 10 from the US. The average age is probably 21. And uh, shortly thereafter, the greatest amateur event in golf. Most of them are, are professionals. Most of them play professionally. I have nothing against professional golf, but <clears throat> the USGA and the RNA have uh, the foundation of their organizations is amateur golf. How many people around the world play golf? 100 million, 200 million? And most of them are amateur golfers. And uh, they're the foundation of the game. They pay their way. And I think they should have a significant voice. That's a great take. Jim, I, just, I, I'll, I'll give you one more. Um, the public U.S. Public Links Championship. USGA uh, dropped it in favor of a four ball, a better ball of two, two players. It was a popular event. We had 9,000 entries. I think you could have 90,000 entries and, and have a, a core of people who love the game and uh, would be great supporters of the USGA. I think, I think they lost a, a chance at closeness to real golfers. It's just my opinion. And I'll close with this. I, I, I have a feeling, you know, the, the four-hole playoff for the U.S. Open, I get it. It's Sunday afternoon. Uh, you want to end the championship and so on and so forth. Well, I suggested along the way, why don't you start on Wednesday? There's no pro-am. Start it on Wednesday. And if, it, uh, if there was a playoff and it went on Sunday, can you imagine the, the TV viewership on a Sunday afternoon of the U.S. Open? with Rocco Mediate and Tiger Woods or Bryson DeChambeau and anybody else, it'd be enormous. So uh, those are a few things that uh, I'd like to debate with USGA. You know, I, I remember, Ron, you, you making that um, proposition in, in your book about starting the US Open on, on Wednesdays instead of Thursdays. Um, but the thought that instantly popped into my head was like, um, well, that's another day of the week that I have to pretend that I'm working uh, in order to watch the US Open, <laughs> you know? And I think one of, the, one of the beauties is that, you know, there, there is always golf on Sunday at the US Open, which is almost always Father's Day, isn't it? Yeah, it is Father's Day. Yeah, yeah. so it, you know, it's, it's that one day of the year where, you know, I, I think a lot of families, with with fathers who who are into golf they they kind of know that uh the u.s open is going to be on tv in their in their living room and and uh and that's how dad wants it and that's how you know we're going to do it as a family and 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 that always seems to be like a a nice kind of tradition you know i personally wouldn't want to wait around for the uh you know the the odd situation of there being a playoff, you know, for, for that Sunday tradition to, to occur. I get it. I, I, you know, you don't say anything I don't agree with. I mean, uh, you know, what was wrong with the Monday playoff? It ran into soap operas. Well, you know, I saw a lot of great, several great uh, Monday playoffs and uh, they were all memorable. And, you know, I was just trying to offer an option to lowering the standard of our national championship. You know, you saw um, the the epic playoff at Oakmont uh, in the '90s with Ernie Els and um, 
Colin Montgomery and and a third person I can't remember. Um, uh, come on, the greatest putter in the game. Oh, Lauren Roberts. Lauren Roberts. Yeah, that that's that shows my age right there. Just <laughs> <laughs> that I could pull that out in my forties. Um, but um, you know, I personally wonder if Colin Montgomery's shirt that day has ever dried out. Uh, Boy, that was, uh, there was a lot of speculation. And I'll tell you a a story that's, I don't think it's in the book, but afterwards he went into the cubicle there in the clubhouse and he cried his eyes out. And I learned, I learned what that championship meant to, uh, to most players and certainly to Colin Montgomery. It certainly would mean a lot to anyone, but I, I, I remember, um, that Colin did not have a lot of fans in the U S and, and that was fairly un, unfair to him um, being an outsider. And, and I'm sure he really wanted to, to, to silence. Uh, I liked his critics. I, I, I always liked him. In fact, I mean, I like most of the players. 95% were, were real gentlemen. You, you have a story from that day in the book, um, the playoff on that Monday in, at Oakmont. Um, involving Ernie Els, and yep. um, could could you tell us that one? Well, he on the uh, second hole of the playoff, he blew the ball over the green, and I my job that day was I started the players, and then uh, I was to tag along with uh, with the two officials, Trey Holland and uh, Rich Murphy, and I was you know kind of back up rules to them. And um, I saw precisely where that ball went into a thick grove of trees that they've since taken out. And I went in, I went in there and I found his ball. And when I came out, you know, it was so hot. I looked like a porcupine with straw and everything hanging onto me. But uh, I found the ball and he he then went back and played from the fairway because he couldn't take it behind the grove of trees and that wouldn't be an advantageous so you know in a sense maybe I played a part in in his winning that's great uh, any any other questions here from um, those attending Ron this is uh, Chris Bojard um, yeah what's the closest you've gotten to an ace at uh, Jim Nance's uh, hole uh, no I um, you know my book my book is named starting the U.S. Open and uh, we had breakfast one morning, not far from here. And after breakfast, uh, he invited me over to the house to, to play the hole. And I didn't go. So I couldn't take you to his home. But um, uh, Jim gave me the title of the book. He said, I started the U.S. Open. I said, Jim, I, you know, okay, yeah, I was the lucky guy on the first tee. But the I word, you know, I did this, I, did, I didn't want that. So I, I self-published the book. And when I handed it to the, to the printer, I took I off of it and, and uh, simplified it to starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock to Pebble Beach. So for better or worse, <laughs> I, maybe I should have taken Jim's advice. Mr. Reed, Tom McCartney here in Chicago, originally from Northwest Minnesota. I want to say thank you for taking the time to be here with us. Uh, having been a, a former starter at Minneapolis Golf Club, Myself, not quite the same as as, as your uh, experiences, but having uh, you know all sorts of weather that we played through in different conditions, and thinking back to the '91 Open at Hazeltine, the the sad start there with the thunderstorms. 
Well, aside from that, uh, that sad day, any memorable uh, crazy weather experiences that you'd had to deal with in, in unusual uh, uh, starting conditions that, that well, you that had was to make call? Uh, start with that. I mean, that was one of the saddest days uh, I can remember. Um, and it all happened so fast. And, and of course, we could get, we, the officials and players, could get in to safety, but it was tough for the spectators. Uh, that was a sad, sad occasion. Um, the first day of the U.S. Open was at uh, Shinnecock, and I was totally ill-prepared. I didn't have a clipboard. I didn't have a rain suit. It rained cats and, you know, like Chicago weather can be. And uh, my umbrella inverted, and I ended up throwing it away. I was a mess. So uh, that, that, was, that was really the worst. Um, Beth Page, uh, you know, it rained for, what, 21 straight days? And when was that, 98? Um, it was a terrible, terrible day. And uh, excuse me, 08. It was 02 and 08, I believe. Uh, but it was in 08 that uh, when Lucas Glover won that, uh, you know, it just rained constantly. It was, it was it, for me as an official or starter, it was like um, being at O'Hare Airport when it snows. You know, you never knew when you, you might get to go. <laughs> And uh, that, that, was a, that was a tough one right there. Thank you. Hey, Ron, this is uh, Philip again. I, I really, uh, I, I personally identified with your comment about the amateur public links. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to qualify for two of them. And uh, uh, that, 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 that event uh, was just so much fun. And it was it was kind of the heart of the USGA, right? Because you're playing with people that are true public golfers. Um, so I I would love to see that event come back. But where'd you play? Uh, I qualified actually once at Cantini. Uh, out I was here. there. I and, was there. And then uh, the year after, we were at uh, Murphy Creek out in Colorado. Oh wow! No, I wasn't at that one. I worked uh, Cantini and many many public links championships so you know you know what i would do i'd hold qualifying at every public golf course i would decree may or whatever and uh, the thing the the problem with it was the college kids because that you know you know the deal they all they 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 never pay for golf they play in um, so many events a year Uh, they have their expenses paid and then you go double rounds for so many days and it was no wonder that they won, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, I mean, you, yeah. you could you could get around those issues um, in scheduling and and by having it at every public golf course. Can you imagine at Coghill on a Saturday and a Sunday, you'd get four hundred golfers that would play. So, kind of kind of piggybacking off of that, I'd love to know your thoughts on. Uh, the USGA is about to have a new chief executive with Mike Wan. Uh, yeah. would love to hear your thoughts on uh, him taking over. I, you know, I, I've only met Mike. Uh, he struck me as a, as a, you know, a fine gentleman. Um, of course, Mike Davis, I, I know intimately uh, and was one of his biggest fans um, in taking, getting the job. They tell me M- Mike Wan is a tremendous marketer. 
I, I tell you one thing I'm going to find interesting is when they go to announce the purse for the U.S. Women's Open. Uh, um, you know, in my opinion, the the purse should be it's the biggest event in women's golf, and it is the biggest purse today. And if you looked at the balance sheet, the USGA doesn't make any money. They don't. I wish I wish the women would play for more money than the men. It wouldn't hurt me at all. But the reality is, from a financial standpoint, it, it just doesn't make sense. But, uh, but it'll be interesting to see how Mike handles that issue. Uh, men play for, what, $12, $13 million? I don't, I don't see how you can justify it for the ladies, you know, when they have what, 900 qualifiers maybe, and, and you don't have the TV audience, it's sad, it's unfortunate, but that's the reality. Uh, I, I um, you know, I wish him well. I hope, I hope, I, I mentioned earlier the, you know, the shareholders, the clubs. Um, I don't, I hope he doesn't lose sight of who really are his constituency, that's all. Everyone, thanks for your questions. Thanks for attending. Ron, thanks for being with us. Well, listen, uh, I have one, one thing I'd like to do, if I may. Two things. Uh, we didn't talk about the best chapter in the book, and it's about the dreamers. Who are the dreamers? They're the guys that have to go through local and sectional qualifying, the 9,000-plus that try to get into the U.S. Open. They dream about playing in the U.S. Open. They don't get a pass like Phil Mickelson and, and the rest. And one of them entered the U.S. Open from prison. And he happened to have been a caddy at Augusta National Golf Club. And he almost qualified at a nice club there in Chicago. He barely missed qualifying. And I think it's one of the best stories in the book. But. Uh, I'd like to close with this. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the 121st United States Open Championship. The players in the final group are Bryson DeChambeau of Clovis, California, and Dr. James Sitar of Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Sitar, play away, please. Wow, I would be... I would be shaking and probably unable to hit the ball at that point. So I'm glad that this is just a hypothetical. Um, but I, 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 I appreciate that, uh, that, that uh, exit there. Uh, Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, your book, Starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock to Pebble Beach, is a real pleasure to read. Um, you know, for someone who reads a lot of golf books, um, uh, and people telling me that I read too many golf books. Um, I can tell you um, that I've, I thought that I heard all the stories, all the interesting anecdotes that are out there about Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, uh, Tom Watson, uh, and everyone ever since. Um, but every page I turned in your book, there was something new that I learned, some story, uh, many of them very funny, that I had never heard before. So I feel like your, your book is a real gift to the golf world and uh, to our community and our society at New Club. 
So thanks for sharing your memories and your experiences with us and the world um, at large. And thanks for joining us tonight on the Backdrop Live. All the best. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at New Club Golf. This episode was produced by Mark Caldwell with research assistance by Jim Sitar. The backdrop is supported by members of New Club Golf Society and our official partners. Journeyman Distillery is the official partner of this year's summer medal at Sand Valley and Lasonia. Golf and whiskey go together like, well, the perfect twosome. My favorite is their Silver Cross. It's a name that hails from the medal given out at the early days of the British Open. This medal would later come to symbolize friendship, tradition, camaraderie, and spirited competition. In that same spirit, Journeyman has created a tradition they call Four Grains for Golf donating 1% of all sales from Silver Cross Whiskey back to the various golf charities and organizations that teach kids the game of golf. It instills in them its core values. Kids play free on Welter Follies 30,000 square foot real grass putting green. Not kidding, it's huge. Modeled after Himalaya's putting course in St. Andrews, Scotland. Journeyman has been distilling artisan spirits for a decade in their historic Featherbone factory located in the one-stop light town of Three Oaks, Michigan. They are grain-to-bottle, produce certified organic, kosher, and gluten-free award-winning whiskeys, and you can check out their full portfolio of spirits at journeymandistillery.com.